Behind the men and women who serve our country are fearless leaders who live in the shadows. They stay up late nights praying, worrying, and waiting for phone calls, filling out mountains of paperwork, and keeping research folders on experimental services. But more importantly, they patiently love our heroes back together again. Welcome to your community. No matter what stage you're at, we're here to provide expert resources, faithful support, and real-life insight into how you can move from managing to living your best life. Your hosts, Libby Bates and Erin McCauley, found one another in opposite sides of the country in different stages, but with a common struggle. Together with outside guests and experts, we'll open the resources and support you need. Let's get to the episode. Hey listeners, welcome back today. We're joined by Navy veteran Brian McLaughlin. Welcome to Behind the Service, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Do you want to share some of your military journey with our listeners? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I always wanted to be in the military. My dad was telling me stories about being a tanker when he was in and man, I love that stuff. You just tell the best mm-hmm. stories. So I grew up always wanting to be in the military. And when I was in high school, I blew out both of my knees in football. So I had a bunch of surgeries. So I got into the military a little later than I'd wanted to about at about age 20. I had originally joined up to go to the SEAL teams, but at about that time, my wife, my high school sweetheart, we were going to get married. And uh, against everybody's uh, recommendations, we went ahead and did that. But uh, they said, if you're going to go to the SEAL teams, you're not going to see your uh, your loved ones for a long time. And I thought, well, maybe I don't want to do that right now. I'd prefer to be with my wife and maybe I'll come back to it. So I said, what other jobs you got? And they had cook. I like to cook. I'm really glad I didn't pick that though. They had computer tech, which I wasn't going to touch because I don't know anything about computers. And they had corpsman. And I said, uh, what's that? And they said, it's like a medic for the Marine Corps. So I thought, maybe I'll still get to blow some shit up. So maybe I'll pick that, go hang out with the Marines. So I picked that up, went to core school. Right after core school, I went out and went to 29 Palms where I spent two years in the ER out there. That kind of helped me to cut my teeth on trauma a little bit so that when I actually went to combat, it wasn't as quite a, a shock. And uh, I had the opportunity to really pick the brains of the doctors that worked there. A lot of the ER doctors were these old salty guys, a lot of like SWAT doctors and stuff like that. And so I got to talk to them about a lot of different uh, combat trauma management and that kind of stuff. So that helped. And went to Afghanistan, came back, tried to get on another uh, combat tour, but they were doing a big drawdown at that time. My time in Afghanistan was very difficult, but incredibly fulfilling in some weird way. I really enjoyed my time there as hard as it was. And I kept trying to go back, but it was harder and harder to get to go back there. So I thought to myself, I'm going to pick up the SEAL teams again and uh, started working out for that. And right about that time, my wife got pregnant. And I always told her that if you ever got pregnant, I'd get out of the military. And uh, so she, she says she's pregnant. So I says, all right. I guess we're getting out. And she says, really? And I said, I told you I would. So I'm going to keep my word. And I got out of the military and and I I really enjoyed my time in the military, but getting out is, I'm glad I did. I I don't know how much longer I would have been around if I had stayed there as much as I loved it. And as much as I want to still go back, if it wasn't for me getting out of the military, I don't know where I'd be. So I'm glad I got out, but I still miss it. It was a good time. That has to be one of the most unique stories I think I have ever 
heard, which I have to say, our husbands are army and finding a deployment was not something that was difficult for them. And so that is, that's such an interesting thing. I've not heard very many people say that they enjoyed their time, but at the same time, I've heard a lot of people who said, you know, that it was, there were things that they pulled out of it. There was a lot of growth. I would venture to say that would be so for you as well. What was your transition like back into the civilian world? And what did you find the most difficult thing was about it? I would say easily the most difficult thing about transitioning back to the civilian life was the loss of my identity. Like when, when I was in the military, I was HM2 Doc Mac. That's what they call me, Doc Mac, HM2. I could get stuff done. I had reputation. I had a little bit of authority. I was very good at my job. and and everybody knew it. And it was very difficult to leave all that and then to become nothing. I really struggled with that. I'm like, who am I now? I'm not, I'm obviously not this HM2 anymore. I, you know, I, I don't have any of that. And what am I doing now? And I started trying to figure that out. And that was a really long, hard road for me to try to reinvent myself in a way that made me happy with who I was and where I was going. I had so much of my identity wrapped up in not only being a corpsman, but being a warrior, being somebody who can do hard things and go hard places and, and come out on top. And now I'm just, now what am I doing? And that was really difficult for me to get around. But fortunately, I've been making some pretty good progress into that. And uh, the past couple of years have been really nice. I love that you said that because that seems to be a universal thing with the veterans that we talk to and the veteran caregivers as well. We actually just had Rachel D'Alto, she's a relationship expert on to talk about identity and finding your identity and because that's something that veterans struggle with, caregivers struggle with is losing their own personal identity in the process. So I love that you say that because that's so relevant. It makes it triply, doubly hard at least where you're getting out of the military and then you have PTSD issues that you're trying to deal with. Now you have no identity, you have no job, you have no security for your family. And now you're trying to go to school, hopefully to get a little bit of that money. That's a whole new environment. You got all these rich kids in your class looking at you like you're some scuzzy animal, which I am. It, it's definitely, it, it hit me way harder than I thought. I had a lot of people say, hey, it's hard when you get out. I was like, come on, man. I went to combat. How hard can it be? It's hard, hard on a whole new level. I definitely struggle with the idea of having a, a child. I, we had one a year after I'd come back from Afghanistan. And this was that whole time I was trying to get back on a next combat deployment. I did not want to be in the U.S., all I wanted to do was be in Afghanistan. And uh, my wife said that she was pregnant and uh, we started going through that. We flew out to Colorado because that's where all our family are and had the baby there, here, and then flew all the way back to Camp Pendleton and for the last year of my uh, enlistment. And I, it was very disconcerting because, uh, you know, when I'd hold my newborn, I felt nothing. I felt I didn't feel anything. It could have been anybody's kid. Someone could have just handed me a random child and I, and that would have been my kid. And it really bothered me to feel like that because I came from a very loving home. My dad was very loving and affectionate. And he always told me, you know, you'll never know how I feel about you until you have your own son. And now I had my own son and I said, What's wrong with me? And what I've never gotten seen for it professionally, but I am assuming it's attachment issues on some sort of level. 
And, and I asked one of my friends who was a father, one of the, the other corpsmen that was there, I was like, hey man, do you ever just look at your kid and think that they could be anybody's kid? <laughs> <laughs> or I didn't tell her. I didn't tell her because I, I felt so bad about it because I know it wasn't right. But I felt so bad. And he looks at me like, no, I don't have any problems with loving my kids. Maybe I should just never talk about this again. And at, at some point, I, I wound up mentioning it to my wife that this is how I felt. And she, of course, was understandably very upset about that. Right. And so, of course, she starts doing her own research and she comes and finds somebody online talking about that same basic attachment issues. And this guy winds up saying something about the defective, hang in there, eventually that will change. And it did. Over a couple of years, I really worked at it and really tried to make those little changes in my life. And and not see my children so much as a hassle, but more of a joy. That helped. And slowly over time, that definitely started to change. But I, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Apparently it I, is. I, I think that you guys get sent overseas. You, you have to separate yourselves from your life back home because you're going into a war zone where you don't know if you're coming back out alive or not. So you have to separate yourself from the reality of home life. So maybe that's a little bit to do with it is you've already broken that bar and separated yourself from that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's partly compartmentalization. Yeah. And it's not, I don't think it's incredibly rare at all. I think that, I think it's pretty common. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Could you share with us what led you to start Mountain Medical? What exactly is it? Can you explain it to our listeners? Oh, yeah. That was a weird. Uh, I fell into it. I started, uh, my wife found a ad posting for a writer on a uh, gun website. And I kind of like guns and I, I like to write. I'm working on my degree right now in creative writing. And so I, I was working for a nonprofit organization, a, a veteran service organization at the time. And it wasn't the, my favorite job in the world. I, I did get to help a lot of vets and interact with them and tell a lot of different stories, but it wasn't the thing I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so I thought maybe I'd pick this job up. Wound up doing that for quite a while, uh, a year or so. And then I went to Jacob and he had said, hey, let's, let's start, a, start a, a medical company. And uh, you've got all this medical experience. Let's, why don't you go ahead and find all the stuff to make me a medical kit. So did that. And after a while, I said, you're the face of the company already. Everything based on my experience. Why don't I just change jobs from being a writer to being like, I didn't know what to call it at the time, but uh, I've since learned that it's called a brand ambassador. So I just try to talk about medical stuff and go on podcasts and bring awareness to it. But Ultimately, I, I just wanted to help people out and I thought this would be a good way to do that. I don't make a ton of money from this. This is just fun to do. It's nice to be able to share my story and maybe it'll help somebody else um, in the future. I know if somebody else's story wasn't shared with me, I might not be where I am today. So it's just nice to know that you're not a freak and you're not alone and there is hope. That's nice. Absolutely. So I know that a lot of veterans in the population live in rural areas. So knowing life-saving skills, how is that pertinent to caregivers of, say, wounded service members and veterans? I would, I, the thing that pops into my mind the quickest is suicide, but there's a substantial number of us that take the easy way out. And 
Knowing some basic uh, first aid stuff might be beneficial. Definitely being able to stop bleeding is pretty important, especially if you're, you are rural and it's going to take you a half hour for uh, paramedics to get to you and then another half hour to get you to uh, a hospital. You can bleed out pretty quick in that amount of time. So having a good trauma kit, I think would be very important. And not only just for the worst of scenarios, but other things that can happen as well. I'm going to ask you to go a little bit deeper. And if we have to edit this out, it's perfectly fine. So we're going to ask you a little bit about what are your must-haves for your home, everyday carry, and also for your vehicle. But if I also wanted to talk to you about one thing that I've noticed is there's sometimes a little bit of dialogue when it comes to veterans, especially veterans that deal with PTSD, that it's a good idea to take their firearms away from them. I do not personally, I just want to preface this by saying that we behind the service podcast don't feel, I, I personally would not, I don't feel that's advantageous, especially to someone who has survived with a weapon to then tell them that they don't have the ability to carry one anymore. I actually think it's going to compound issues, but I'm interested in your approach because we're just, we're observers. So I want to know what you think. And then of course, I want to know what are your must-haves? Because we want to know that, Ryan. Definitely my I'll start with I'll start with your question about the the firearms and that's that is definitely an odd one and I don't know if I have a, a good answer for that. I can see both sides of that same coin. I also agree that if somebody came and tried to take my firearms away from me, I would be very upset about it. At the same time, I've also been at a risk of not using those firearms properly. That's a hard one. I don't know if I've got an answer for that. I know there's a lot of very upset people on both sides of the fence on that. And I can see both sides of the argument. I think, I, I don't know. I really don't have an I think answer. it's having an open, and I'm going to get really open and personal here, but we own a firearm. And there have been times when I have told my husband, I think that you should not have access to this at this with current situation at hand, but to permanent, like to say you no longer have the ability to care for your own weapons, hand me the keys from now on because, and so that's more where we, we look at it as a, maybe a flow method rather than a, like a hard and fast like I'm your caretaker of your guns. And if I feel that you can use them today, then you can, <laughs> Like that's not, yeah. It, 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 I feel like it kind of needs to be the other way. Yeah, I would like to, for there to be something along the lines of when you are doing better, you do get the guns back or something like that. They're not just gone forever because I don't believe that once you have PTSD, you're screwed up forever. I think you can recover. Right. I don't think you're 100% right. healed for the rest of your life, but I think you definitely can recover. And I think one of the main problems that people have with that particular idea is the worry that it's going to be abused. And if we could put some, some sort of checks and balances in place to prevent it from being abused, I think that would help to alleviate a lot of problems and just make the whole experience less of a, of a legal trial and more of a, hey, this is going to help you out. Let's agree on a course of action together. I like your answer, by the way. I think it's reasonable. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of unread, like it's just very, it's going to be this and we're not going to talk about it on yeah. both sides. And I it needs to be very fluid, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people imagine that the cops are going to show up at their front door, handcuff them, and then parade all their guns out through the neighborhood. And 
hopefully that wouldn't be the case. Hopefully we could come up with a good solution to that. But I, I think something should be tried to be done in some way. I, I don't know. That's a tricky one. For everyday carry, my number one item that I will recommend everybody put in their pocket is my favorite tourniquet. And that is the SWAT T. This is basically just a stretchy rubber band. It's nice and wide. It's like a multi-tool. You can use it as a tourniquet to stop massive bleeding. You can use it as a pressure dressing, a sling. You can wrap sprints. It's really small. You can see it with my hand. And you fit it in a little pocket or something. And if I can only have one medical item for trauma, I'm going to probably grab this because it can do a lot of different things. If you have a uh, tourniquet, like your uh, normal cat tourniquets, these are only good for stopping bleeding, which is great. They work great at stopping bleeding, but the SWAT T, even though it doesn't look quite as tactical and quite as cool, the SWAT T is uh, my choice for uh, my go-to only one item. So I really like that. For my everyday carry, I usually like to carry a uh, pocket knife. I usually have a uh, fixed blade on me for, I don't know, just because I think it's cool. And uh, concealed carry, I, I don't concealed carry at the moment. I decided to take a little bit of a break from it. I, kept, I started feeling like um, carrying my pistol around was a little bit like a security blanket. And I felt like when I went out into town and I didn't have it, I felt really awkward and very vulnerable. And I didn't like that. So I, I decided I needed to break myself for that before I started carrying again. And it's about time to start carrying again. I think I'm going to put in and get my concealed carry permit again you're very i've seen a lot of veterans my husband's the same way with the knife he wants the knife with the the blade that doesn't move um right. and we carry a tourniquet in the car he has it in there in case he comes up on a car accident things like that he's tried to show me how to use it but i i, I would be no good i think <laughs> it's really easy it's so easy you're going to be a hero with the most minimal amount of work so I, I think you should learn. It's pretty, pretty easy. The one thing I think everybody should learn is a little bit of medical. Everybody wants to carry a gun or some sort of like fancy weapon. And I get it. Those are cool. I love that stuff too. But in the long run, you're probably going to use medical a lot more often uh, than you will your, your pistol. For the most part, it is uh, just trying to help other people out. I love the idea that if I can impart some sort of weird wisdom that I've learned through the weird things that I've done in my life, and somebody else can benefit from that and survive a very bad injury or help their loved one to survive a very bad injury. That really lights my fire a little bit. And then the other part of it is you know, I got out of the military and I started going to school and I thought, I've got these medical skills. Why don't I just go be a nurse or something? So I went into college and I think my PTSD was really bad and I could not focus on the teacher. I could not they would say something and I would try so hard to listen to everything that they said. And it, my brain would just, it would just like, just run through it. Like it was a net. And I thought maybe I'm just stupid. I didn't think I was this stupid, but I feel so stupid. And I failed out of all my classes and it was, it was really bad, but I was going, trying to go to be a nurse. And what I realized while I was going to school for that is I don't really enjoy medicine so much as I enjoy combat. And my role in combat is the medical aspect. And that's what I enjoyed about it. I enjoyed being the, the guy who is coming, you're hurt and you're happy to see me show up. That feels good to be that guy, to see the relief on somebody's face when it's you, you take care of them. They're like, okay, I'm going to be all right. Doc's got me. That is incredibly powerful feeling. And uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. So if you could leave our veteran caregivers with some words of advice or veterans, what would that be? 
Oh, you're not alone. Everybody thinks that nobody knows what I'm going through. Like maybe not the exact experience that you went through, but we all have our own experiences and we're all dealing with it for pretty much the same way. I cannot tell you the number of people that I've talked to, the stories that they've told me and as, as horrible as they are, they're just the same stories over and over again. And we all deal with it differently. You need to get out of your bubble. Don't isolate yourself. And if you're not going to change for yourself, find someone to love and change for them. I love that. That is very good advice. Excellent advice. Now, tell our listeners how they can find you and also me because I've been slightly stalking you since we've been talking. I might have found you on the Instagram and on the Facebook, but... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a knuckle dragger. This whole technology thing is kicking my butt right now. So uh, I don't do so much on social media. My main place that you can find me is mountainmanmedical.com. That's our uh, website. That's where we sell our trauma kits. If you want to come and learn some stuff about trauma and uh, combat trauma and first aid and all that kind of stuff, I've got a YouTube channel. Just type in mountainmanmedical.com. That's been going pretty well. I only have about uh, 1,600 subscribers or so, but it's a good time. That's been- a lot. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. I've been hooking and jabbing. It's about 1,599 more than we have on YouTube so far. (laughs) I haven't seen your YouTube channel, but I know, speaking as a parent, I didn't know a lot about first aid. And that might be something I learned a lot from my husband that he knew because of combat skills on just very small things. If she's fallen, how to check if her you know, ankle is twisted versus rolled versus sprained because it does matter the way that you treat it, things like that, the way that you bandage it. And we, anytime that you're out in a rural area, which is where we are, it's a lot of time until you get to a medical facility. And especially now, even in dense populations, their wait time is very long for emergency medical services to get there oftentimes. So I think that this stuff is really important, even as, as parents learning. Yeah, it, uh, that's a huge deal, especially for parents. Like I have three small, savage little boys. Like they get into some pretty ridiculous stuff. My youngest one lost the tip of his finger about a year ago. He got it caught in a bike chain. And uh, yeah, lost the tip of his pointer finger. Yeah, that stuff happens. And having some minor medical skills, it doesn't take very long. And I would recommend for everybody, the first thing that you do if you have some very bad bleeding is direct pressure. If you don't have a tourniquet, you don't know what to do, just put your hands on it and push down as hard as you can until the bleeding stops and make sure EMS is on the way. And you can probably save someone's life just that way, even if you don't have a tourniquet. Or realizing, I think this was really key for me too. I I didn't realize how much I didn't know until our daughter got to be a little bit older. But when she would have any sort of an incident, fall off a bike or whatever, his number one thing was to get her to calm first. So then he could find out what the root issue is. I don't know that I would have been searching all of the bones and all over looking for scrapes and scratches, whereas he was going for, okay, I need you to calm dad can't help you unless you're calm. And I didn't realize how much that affects your medical status already. So that was something I would have never even thought of. 
Yeah. Calm breeds calm. If you can talk to your casualty, whoever you're working on, and if you're very calm yourself, not only does that help them stay calm, but it helps you stay calm. That's a big deal. You staying calm is a pretty big deal. It helps you to get your job done and to see the, the bigger picture and anticipate those problems. So yeah. If that's a qualification, I would, that was not the job for me, then I would have been a horrible medic. <laughs> <laughs> you learn, you'll learn it. You'll learn it. It's fine. <laughs> I'm a funeral director's daughter. And so the way that my dad always said, cause I had talked about going into medical and he goes, I don't know, Aaron. He goes, when they come to me, there's nothing in the world I can do to help them. Like they're not <laughs> looking at me going, please help me. Yeah. I'm going to have to watch some of Brian's videos, but for right now, I'm just thankful there's people like Brian out there. That can be there instead of me. The only thing that you can do is just hold their hand. Sometimes the injuries are just so bad and all you can do is just be there for them. And there's nothing that you can actually do, but that's not nothing. That's an important job all in itself to be somebody that can be there and just say, hey, I'm here with you. That's important to some people. That is. And it ties in perfectly to what we're going over next. At the end of our show each week, we go over a scripture and this week it comes out of the book of First John, and this is out of the New Living Translation. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. And I think this is, it, it, goodness gracious, it ties in perfectly to what you were just talking about, that sometimes people just need someone there. One thing I have learned is in, in my life, I, my husband's probably been my best teacher here, and it is for things like keeping a tourniquet in your car, because you're prepared for the unknown, you're prepared to help people. And so you don't have to be the person on the side of the road screaming and hollering because they don't have anything to give to the situation. And through that, your actions do show who you belong to and that you belong to the truth. That's interesting how you tied that in, not even knowing where we were going, but it is, it really talks about the things that you go over because being prepared to help somebody is really something that you can't put a price on, especially when you're the one that is in need of the help. I, absolutely. And I think uh, a big part of that preparation is uh, scenario training. I think a huge part of that is thinking to yourself, I, I don't know how much uh, you ladies, you were talking about the defensive carry and stuff like that. And one of the big things that people will do in concealed carry is imagine they're in a uh, gas station and someone's coming in to rob it. What do I do? You do the same exact thing for medical. And uh, I picked that skill up when I was in Afghanistan as a way of keeping myself grounded to the situation in front of me and not get complacent. I would continually run through scenarios in my head. If I get hit with an IED right here, right now, what do I do? What injuries am I going to treat? Where am I going to set up my casualty collection point? What do I do if I'm screwed up and I need to take care of somebody else? And I would run through those steps in my head so that when the time actually came, I just snapped and did those things that I'd already been imagining myself doing. And another thing that I would recommend for somebody who wants to be prepared mentally is to see yourself succeed. Don't see yourself falling apart because you're already setting yourself up for 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 failure. Occasionally after a class or something, I'll have somebody that'll approach me nervously and they'll say, Hey, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah, yeah, of course. Come on over. And they'll be real quiet. They'll say, how do you handle all the blood? What? <laughs> how do you handle all the blood? And I say, you just have to. And the first couple of times I got that question, I was really confused. I was like, what? You have to, that you don't have a choice. But what I realized was that these people would put themselves in these scenarios and they were seeing themselves fall apart. 
And what you need to do is see yourself being the best medic that ever walked the planet. And how would that best medic react? What kind of confidence do they exude? How would they speak to that casualty? They're going to speak calmly and confidently, and they're going to think clearly about the situation. And the first couple of times that you're in a bad situation, you might not do that. But after a while, you'll start to, you'll start to learn it, and that's a good way of preparing yourself. Thanks for listening to Behind the Service Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, you leave us a review. It helps more people like you find this podcast. And remember, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We'll talk to you next week.